This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I sentenced you to 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there, there's a pass in here. You can in here and just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during an execution, it had an impression on them that maybe was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until I get back to it. <laughs> Seven months later, I give it back to them. One of the one of the problems we ran into is you had five or six guys that were sitting in a place smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd have to plan in there to, to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. My name is Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. How you doing, Sky? I am good. I'm good. It's uh, right before Thanksgiving, and uh, this is sort of the first week that like I had really the last uh, meeting of two of my classes, and so I'm actually almost done with classes for my whole life. Oh, wow. Which is that crazy. must feel so good. It feels weird. It feels yeah. weird. But, well, yeah, good doing work. Good. Doing good. How yeah. about you? Oh, you know, just finally got over all of our Halloween things. I took a week off after our Locktober events, so thank you everybody who came to that. Went to Portland and had a great time seeing old friends. Now I'm ready to wrap this season up and get on with the holiday season. Yes, thank you to everyone who was patient through this break. I think we both kind of needed it. Um, yeah. Sort of hit that October, like middle of the season kind of hit at a real busy time for both of us. So thank you all oh, for sticking for sure. around. And uh, we've got, I think, three more episodes for the season. We'll take another break, but then we'll come back and we'll be much, much better off next season. For sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Sky, you have a, a fun story for us today. I do. At least I think it's interesting, but that seems to be the theme of this podcast is me just being like, I think this is neat. I don't know if anyone else does. So today I am talking about number 9008, Doris May Ainsworth. Uh, so my sources are her inmate file, newspapers.com articles, and especially the Times News from Twin Falls. An article called First School Closed for Low Marks by Jim Killikey in the Oklahoman from 1992, History.com articles on the Korean War, military.wikia.org on the United States Disciplinary Barracks, visit LeavenworthKS.com, militarybases.us, and then the Federal Register Volume 16 from 1951, which I got from Google Books and uh, just some statistics from Wikipedia. So... Nice. Doris May Ainsworth was born Doris May Albert on February 24, 1930, in Nawada, Oklahoma, to Louis W. Albert and Margaret Barnes Albert. She claimed that her name on her birth certificate was Iva May Albert, but everyone called her Doris. I couldn't find any proof of this. Even her parents list her given name as Doris when they had to give her official name and stuff. So I don't know why she said her name was Iva May. She was one of four siblings. She was the only girl. She had two older brothers, Wesley and Jack, and a younger brother, Ray. They grew up in Cooties Bluff, Nawada County, Oklahoma, where her father owned 80 acres of a family farm. And their address uh, in the 1930 census is just listed as, quote, improved dirt road, end quote. So this is like huh. a rural upbringing. Yeah. But she stated that she had a, quote, pleasant, happy, and normal childhood, end quote. She said her father was fairly strict, but also admitted that he was probably more strict with her brothers than he was with her. She also said her mother seemed to favor Ray, her youngest brother, but that admitted this was normal because he is the baby of the family and anyone, I mean, you are the baby of the family, but as the oldest, I can say that baby siblings get the, uh, get the preferential treatment, even if your parents oh, deny it. They're the best. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's, <laughs> we're just like laughing like lunatics right now. <laughs> uh, it's I, my youngest brother. He is, he gets all the good stuff. Not better. I'm not better. Um, so 
Dora said that she felt equally close to both of her parents, and she said that she and her brothers had the usual amount of rivalry when they were kids. She also admitted that she had been taught right from wrong while she was growing up and was, quote, told and taught that above all things, never to lie, end quote. Um, so keep this in mind for later. Doris wasn't really raised in a church. She said her mother sometimes went to Seventh-day Adventist church, and she would sometimes go with her. She said she went especially around the age of eight, but didn't make it clear as to, like, why the age of eight. I know in the LDS church, eight is the the age that you often get baptized, but I don't know enough about Seventh-day Adventist to know if that's a special age. She also said that because her family lived in those isolated farm conditions, it was kind of difficult for them to go to church very frequently. So she attended the Aoyue High School and graduated at age 17 in 1947. She stated that she liked school when she went, that she was just a pretty average student. But to give you an idea of, again, how totally rural this area was, in 1992, the entire Aoyue school district actually closed because of poor student achievement and dwindling enrollment. And when it closed, only 45 students were attending regularly. So this was just a small rural area, just a complete farming childhood, essentially, that she grew up in. So when she graduated from high school, she almost immediately got married, and she married a man named Bill F. Moomy on December 29th, 1947, about two months before her 18th birthday. And on the marriage certificate, both of them actually lied about their ages. She said that she was 18, but that's, I mean, it's not too much of a stretch. She was only two months away from it. He said that he was 21. He was actually about 24. He was about seven years older than Doris. Starting in 1948, she began working as a waitress at Burt's Good Humor Cafe in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Bill worked as a general laborer. And she said that she worked nights and he worked days, so they just didn't really see each other very often. Mm -hmm. And according to Doris, in August 1950, quote, without any warning, end quote, Bill asked for a divorce. Doris thought that it might have been due to another woman, but there was no evidence to substantiate that. They divorced in December 1950 after three years of marriage, and Doris briefly returned home to live with her parents. So on February 19th, 1951, only about two months after her divorce was final, she married Bill G. Billy Ainsworth at Franklin, Indiana, and his real name was Louis Jean Ainsworth. She probably actually knew him from her youth, because in 1947, he was a young 15-year-old who had been sentenced to time at the Oklahoma State Reformatory School from Nawada. So, and obviously, Nawada is where Doris was from, so they probably uh, knew each other uh, when they were younger. Weirdly, Bill claimed, according to the Pampa Daily News, to be Al Capone's younger brother, Jimmy Capone. What? <laughs> so this is... Very unlikely, because Bill was born in 1932, and it seems that none of Capone's family was born any later than 1907. (laughs) Plus, Al's brothers that used the name James or Jimmy weren't even born after 1900. (laughs) So, it makes no sense. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why. It actually, but it did actually appear in the newspaper that, like, he claims to be Al Capone's younger brother. I, I don't know. So this marriage to Billy or Lewis or whatever we want to call him seemed to be much better than her first one. She said they got along really well, they had fun together, and that she, quote, loves him dearly, end quote. And they really did seem to love each other because according to an FBI wanted poster for Bill from 1964, he actually had a tattoo on his left forearm that said Doris. And like, I mean, you don't really get tattoos unless you're like really into that person. Typically, typically, it still seems like a bad idea, in my opinion, and I have lots of tattoos and will take any excuse to get a new one. But um, (laughs) it seems like a dangerous game. But I do think that they really did love each other. And we'll see that unfold here in a little bit. So right after the marriage, she worked at the American Hosiery Mill in Indianapolis as an order filler, and Bill was a soldier in the U.S. Army. But he was a bit of a troublemaker, and he actually went AWOL several times. So the years that Bill was in the Army was at the height of the Korean War conflict. And just to give you a little bit of background, the Korean War is one that we don't talk about in U.S. history very often. And this was before Vietnam. So when I make this comparison, these these are not comparisons, obviously, that these people made, but just for us in the future, sort of knowing those two conflicts, I'm hoping that this analogy can can 
makes sense. So the reasons for the Korean War were very similar to that of the reasons for getting involved at Vietnam. So basically, on June 25th, 1950, the North Korean People's Army crossed the 38th parallel, which separated Soviet-backed North Korea, or what was then the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, and separated them from the pro-Western Republic of Korea, which is now South Korea. In less than a month after that, American troops entered the war on behalf of South Korea again, hoping to essentially stymie the communist back forces that were invading this Western, supposedly like democratically aimed South Korea. Again, American officials saw their involvement as stopping the spread of international communism. This is the beginning of the Cold War. And within a few years, casualties began mounting with very little progress to show for it. And soon, American officials wanted to broker an armistice with the North Koreans. Uh, the alternative to an armistice, if it couldn't be reached, would be a larger war with the Soviet Union and or China. And some were concerned that it may lead to World War III. So this seemed very crucial to sort of get things done. So... In July 1953, the Korean Armistice Agreement was signed, and that created the Korean Demilitarized Zone, which is a strip of land that separates North and South Korea, and this demilitarized zone allowed for the return of prisoners. And so at long last, the carnage of war is to cease, and the negotiations of the conference table is to begin. On this Sabbath evening, each of us devoutly prays that all nations may come to see the wisdom of composing differences in this fashion before, rather than after, there is resort to brutal and futile battle. Now as we strive to bring about that wisdom, there is, in this moment of sober satisfaction, one thought that must discipline our emotions and steady our resolution. It is this. We have won an armistice on a single battleground, not peace in the world. We may not now relax our guard nor cease our quest. Throughout the coming months, during the period of prisoner screening and exchange, and during the possibly longer period of the political conference, which looks toward the unification of Korea, we and our United Nation allies must be vigilant against the possibility of untoward developments. And as we do so, we shall fervently strive to ensure that this armistice will, in fact, bring free peoples one step nearer to their goal of a world at peace. My fellow citizens, almost 90 years ago, Abraham Lincoln, at the end of a war, delivered his second inaugural address. At the end of that speech, he spoke some words that I think more nearly would express the true feelings of America tonight than would any other words ever spoken or written. You recall him, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right. Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. This is our resolve and our dedication. No peace treaty was ever officially signed, meaning that technically the Korean War is still ongoing, but it's what's now called a quote-unquote frozen conflict. And so that just means that the armed conflict is ended, but there has not been like an official resolve. And legally, the conflict can start again at any time. In all, the Korean War led to the loss of 5 million soldiers and civilians, and it is often called the Forgotten War because of the lack of attention it received compared to other conflicts like World War II and the Vietnam. So, in 1952, Bill went AWOL, and he gave his reasoning as, quote, because he felt he wasn't given fair treatment in the Army, that he had been hurt or injured, that because of this he was left behind while his buddies went on without him, that after he was recovered from his injuries, he was scheduled to take his period of basic training over again, so he left, end quote. So he escaped from the guardhouse at Fort Sill, Oklahoma in the summer of 1952, and he got back with Doris, and together they went on the run. 
She did work for a little bit at the Lloyd Massad Cafe in Lawton, Oklahoma, but once Bill found her after going AWOL, obviously she left that job. And it is during this period that Doris admits to forging checks to fund their travel around the country. On January 9th, 1954, Doris and Bill were arrested in Pampa, Texas for forgery. They reported that they had previously forged checks in Illinois and Indiana on their journey, and Doris herself supposedly confessed to forging four checks in Amarillo, Texas, and one in Groom, Texas, before being arrested in Pampa, and so they were held at the Gray County Jail, and she had had forged all of these checks under the name Rose Dials. While being held and questioned by authorities, she claimed that Bill threatened to kill her, and she also said that Bill may have been a bigamist. There are some contradicting reports to this accusation. So one report said that Doris was the second wife and that Bill had not divorced his first wife before marrying Doris. But another report said that Doris was the first wife and he had married a second wife in New Mexico. I think it is more of the first situation that Doris was actually the second wife. One report from the Pampa Daily News said that Bill threatened to kill her after Doris was confronted by Bill and his first wife. This disagreement was only discussed in the newspaper. Doris herself didn't bring it up, so I'm not sure of the details of that. The other wife's name was not given in the articles, and he went by so many different names. He went by Bill, he went by Billy, he went by Lewis, he went by Jean, and so I couldn't find a record of who this other wife was. But he doesn't seem to have been charged on this bigamist charge. Both Billy and Doris were arrested for the forgeries, and Bill was held for military authorities to retrieve him. And of course, he, since he was AWOL, was arrested and taken to the U.S. military disciplinary barracks in Leavenworth, Kansas. So uh, just a little bit of background on Leavenworth, which I like, I feel like I know that it's like a big deal. Like if you get sent to Leavenworth, like, oh, you really did something bad. But I like didn't know the history and background of what is actually at Leavenworth. So mm-hmm. at Leavenworth at the time, there were actually two different prisons. There was the U.S. Penitentiary for Civilians and the United States Disciplinary Barracks at Fort Leavenworth. So one obviously for it was a federal prison for the average person, and then the USDB is where Bill was taken because he was in the military. Now, there are actually three prisons. Those two, the U.S. Disciplinary Barracks and the U.S. Penitentiary, but the third is a Midwest Joint Regional Correctional Facility, which is another military prison. It opened in 2010 as part of a realignment that included closing and consolidating the prisons at the Lackland Air Force Base, Fort Sill, and Fort Knox bases. The USDB first opened in 1874, and prisoners built the majority of the prison, which is very common for prisons back then. They finally completed it in 1921. The original layout of the prison is like the Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, which I've been to. It's super neat. But what happens essentially is the cell... So there's one sort of central structure um, where like the administration is, and then all of the cell blocks radiate out from that center and so that's how the usdb was structured and it has the distinction of offering the first vocational training programs established in the country the original sort of first usdb closed in 2002 and a new one new more updated one was opened so the current usdb is not the one that bill ainsworth would have been transferred to after being caught in texas Once Bill was transferred to Leavenworth, Doris was kept in the Gray County Jail until she was able to make restitution on the checks that she forged and was released on March 12, 1954. After being released, she returned to Nawada, Oklahoma to live with her mother-in-law. Don't know why she didn't live with her own parents. But she got a job there at the Nawada Woodworks. She worked there for about two or three weeks before she apparently took off across the country and resorted to forging checks again. And so across the nation, she forged checks in North and South Dakota and Montana before reaching Idaho on June 29th, 1954. And more specifically, she gets to Twin Falls. So Twin Falls is a place that I've talked a lot about. I've covered the Magic Valley Cowboys, which was the minor league baseball team that came about in 1952. And I talk about them in season three, episode six of June Skinner. So There isn't much else I can cover about Twin Falls history, so I've decided to try something new. 
So what I did is I found the front page of the Times News, which was the main newspaper in Twin Falls from June 19th, 1954, the day I think that she arrived in Twin Falls, to see what events from local to national to international the people of Twin Falls wanted to know about and found important. So if this is boring, then I apologize. I just thought we'd try <laughs> try something new. So the two largest headlines on the front page of the newspaper were international headlines. The first read, quote, Ike and Churchill urge reduction in armaments. And so essentially in Washington, D.C., President Dwight D. Eisenhower and England's Prime Minister Winston Churchill met and discussed what it might take to get a, quote, general reduction, end quote, of world armaments. And they came up with a six point statement of principles where they, quote, asserted their determination to try to bring about conditions in the world in which the prodigious forces of atomic energy should be used to enrich and not destroy mankind, end quote. Mm. This is a very Cold War headline. Yeah. And the Cold War is so prolific at this time that the second international headline was very Cold War as well. And uh, I actually took a class on the Cold War in Latin America. So this is sort of exactly in line with even the the previous headline. And so the title for this one was Victory Looms for Guatemala Rebels, Peace Talks Slated. And so this is from the newspaper itself, quote, an anti-communist revolt in Guatemala moves swiftly towards success today. Under pressure of Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas's rebel air force, the fourth government to be formed in less than 36 hours in threatened Guatemala City, promised to negotiate freely with the Castillo forces, dissolved the leftist parliament and lifted all censorship, end quote. So this is a period of the Guatemalan revolution leading into a large civil war. It was a revolution led by general laborers revolting against brutal conditions on plantations, especially fruit plantations. The U.S. officials thought the reforms brought on by the revolution were perhaps a bit too leftist. Uh, again, this is the cold where anything that looks vaguely red is going to be a major threat. And so in Latin America at the time, there is a lot of leftist movements that are coming into power and revolutions and rebellions all around this time. And so the United States is heavily, heavily involved in South America and Central America. Because of this threat in Guatemala, President Eisenhower authorized what was called Operation PB Success, a CIA operation designed to replace the fairly elected Jacobo Arbenz Guzman with a leader whose politics would more similarly match the U.S. So Guzman had been elected. He was leftist. I should say very few of the Central and South American revolutions were solely communist. A lot more were socialist. But socialism, especially in the Cold War, is not what we do in the United States. So this quote-unquote Guatemalan rebel force discussed in the paper had been armed, funded, and trained by the CIA, and Arbenz was forced to resign. So Carlos Castillo Armas became the next president thanks to this coup d'etat in July 1954. An election was held in October, but no other political parties were allowed to participate, and so Castillo Armas was the only candidate and won with 99% of the vote. So that's what's going on internationally. Very Cold War. But nationally, we find an article about the big epidemic that the U.S. faced in the 1950s, polio. On June 29th, a record of 3,644 cases of polio had been reported in the U.S. in 1954. States with the highest number of cases were, and this will actually seem rather familiar, Florida, Texas, Nevada, California, and Montana. And again, this kind of report is not unfamiliar to us. And then I know. <laughs> hmm. Locally, though, in Twin Falls, there was some big news. And the article that I read for this, the title is Steps Taken to Start Junior College Here. Petitions had been circulating in Twin Falls County to establish a junior college. At least 100 signatures had to be received from each of the seven high school districts in the county in the next 16 days from June 29th. Though it isn't clear that this is for the College of Southern Idaho, we know that there is indeed a junior college in Twin Falls now. It turns out, however, that these 1954 petitions would not be the petitions that started CSI. It would take another 10 years for Twin Falls voters to agree to form a junior college district under the provisions of what was called the Junior College Act passed in 1963. Things are being discussed that we see played out in modern day. And then the other big local story was one titled City Commissioners Air Driver Problems. 
This is the quote from the article. The practice of juveniles driving their automobiles at excessive speeds through the streets of Twin Falls, ignoring stop signs and other traffic signals, and thus endangering the lives and safety of others became a topic of debate at the city commission meeting Monday night. And the commission agreed that the best way to curb this issue was to install more traffic lights and eight different intersections would serve as a preventative measure and also regulate traffic more evenly throughout the city to try to curb the issues of these young Julians driving through town with their fancy fast cars. And so that's what's going on in Twin Falls on the day that Doris passed through. So while Doris was in Twin Falls for an unknown amount of time, she wrote five checks, all worth $37.50, made out to Iva May Albert. From here, she went down to Utah and passed checks in both Logan and Ogden. She was arrested in Ogden, but her charges were apparently dropped. Then she was handed over to the Logan authorities, but charges apparently were also dropped there. From Logan, she was then handed over to authorities in Twin Falls, and she waived her extradition back to Idaho. The check that she was prosecuted in Twin Falls over was cashed by the C.C. Anderson Company department store for, again, $37.50, made out to Iva May Albert, signed by Emma Bradford, who, of course, is not real. Doris pleaded guilty to forgery in court a few weeks later, and she was sentenced to the traditional sentence for forgery, 1 to 14 years, at the Idaho State Penitentiary, and she entered ISP on October 5th, 1954. So her statistics, sex, female, obviously, race, white, age 24, nationality, American, birth date, 2-24-1930, birthplace, Nawada, Oklahoma, eyes, hazel, hair, brown, height, 61 and a half inches, weight, 134 pounds, medium complexion, short builds, no deformities, vaccinated, yes, tattoos, none, drink, no, smoke, no, gamble, no, drugs, none, religious denomination, Seventh-day Adventist, but she marked it as a preference rather than as a full member. Her education was through the 12th grade. She uh, attended the Alue High School in Alue, Oklahoma. She listed her occupation as a waitress. When asked how long she'd been an Idaho resident, she just said transient. So she joined 11 other women, including Josephine Fort, who was in for voluntary manslaughter, who I covered in season three, episode four, Lena Pink Proud, who was in for procurement of abortion, who I covered in season three, episode 10, and Barbara Ann Singleton's first day, she was in for insufficient funds check, season two, episode five. While she was there, she would cross paths with six more women. So this is a fairly full women's ward as she's in there. The other people she met included Edna May Hester, first day, which was her assault with a chemical weapon, and Virginia Lorraine Pugmire's first day, she was in for forgery. And again, I've covered both of those women as well. She came in at the time when they took the really in-depth social history, so we learn a lot about Doris upon her intake. So for example, and I always love these statements that they get because it really gets at sort of who these women are as just humans. So this is um, like her hobbies. So it says, quote, Doris indicates she likes to sew, embroider, ride horses, hike, likes to go on fishing trips with her husband, go to the movies, likes good musical movies, true to life dramatical movies, and likes to play several types of social card games, end quote. Um, And I, of course, appreciate her taste in moves. The 1950s is prime for good good musical movies. Can you talk about some of those that were going on then? Yeah, I mean, just the ones that I've seen. So actually, 54 was one of Judy Garland's best musicals. It was called The Star is Born, which you probably, if anyone knows that, it's Lady Gaga's was the fourth remake of A Star is Born. So Judy's was actually the second. She was actually slated to win the Oscar that year for that performance. It's a masterful performance. Uh, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers also came out in 1954, which is Mm. one of my favorites. It is deeply sexist, but it is also the first old movie that I can remember ever seeing. And so it is just so, it's such a movie that's near and dear to my heart. And the the dance scene is one of the best dance scenes that you'll see. Um, Singing in the Rain might have been 52, so it's a little bit earlier than that. Um, but, but she definitely would have known that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean... I, I can't imagine anyone having... I, I guess it's hard. To, I, I don't know too much about how it was received when it first came out, because now it's so mm-hmm. popular, but everyone would have sort of been familiar with the trope of the transition into sound, which is such a fascinating thing for a musical to look at. So anyway, 50s is 
and this is all just off the top of my head. Like if I were to sit down and actually like pull it up, I would be like, oh, in this one, oh, in this one. And it would be a whole podcast in itself because (laughs) this is all I do with my time. Um, But the 1950s, if if anyone out there wants any recommendations, if you are like, you know what, I want to give the 1950s movie musicals a try, like, let me know. I'll hook you up. Um, so yeah, I can appreciate that. She actually reminds me a lot of me. Like I, I also, I don't embroider. I do cross stitch. I enjoy playing the social games with everyone. I like true to life dramatical movies. Like I feel like I get her. So, but that's, that's the kind of stuff that these in-depth social histories get at that I really like to find out because again, it just makes them human. She's you know, she's a lot like me uh, and she, you know, had to do something to, make ends meet and it was simply you know the wrong thing to do but anyway so during all of her interviews with authorities she always took full responsibility for forging the checks she said her husband never asked her to do it the authorities seemed skeptical about this but she never wavered from that just like most women i've talked about doris really seemed to go in and was ready to serve her time and she had no record of punishment or violation. She did all the usual tasks of housekeeping, cooking, cleaning, just like the other women did. And this was from uh, the administration partway through her, her sentence. It says, quote, Doris is OK and is obedient and willing to do what she can. Her present attitude appears favorable. Institutional adjustment has been good, end quote. It seems she also attended most all of the religious services while she was there. As time came for her parole, she told the parole board she planned to go to her in-laws, George and Evie Ainsworth, in Nawada, Oklahoma. Again, why she doesn't go back to her family, I'm not completely sure, but she planned to get a job within the first month or so and then planned to get back together with Bill when he was released from Leavenworth. She said if for some reason her placement with the in-laws was deemed unsuitable, then she could go back to her parents in Cootie's Bluff, but preferred to be with her in-laws. The Interstate Parole Administrator O.F. McCaskill in Oklahoma checked out her parole plan, and he said that Mr. and Mrs. Ainsworth were both aged 69 and were, quote, both very feeble and need subject to help them. Mr. and Mrs. Ainsworth stated that subject married their son, who is in the Army and will do everything possible for her. Their income is sufficient enough to assist her with three meals per day, end quote. He admitted that the program, quote, does not appear to be very satisfactory, end quote, but was willing to accept her if the Idaho authorities deemed it admissible. Her parents also offered to take her on parole as early as October 1954 when Doris entered the prison, but I'm not sure if they were ever taken up on that offer. And it seems that the Idaho authorities did deem her parole plan admissible, and she was paroled on September 1st, 1955 to Oklahoma. And it doesn't make clear if she went to her parents or her parents-in-law. But regardless, she served 10 months, 27 days on a 1 to 14 year sentence. So she, you know, went in, served her time, did it without complaining. And those are the kind of things that that we like to see, I think. Mm -hmm. Only a few months after she was released, Warden Clapp received a letter from the U.S. General Accounting Office saying she actually owed money to the U.S. government. And this was for what the letter called a, quote, overpayment of Class Q allotment in connection with her husband's army service, end quote. So I tried to figure out what this means. There's not a lot of stuff on the internet about it, so I think it's been discontinued. But based on what I was able to find, I think it's like a dependency payment that basically Doris received money while Bill was active in the military. And I'm assuming that the payment stopped once Bill escaped from Fort Sill. So the government may have paid an advance on the assumption that obviously Bill was going to serve the whole year. And so maybe she owed back a certain amount from his escape but not completely sure. There was no other details other than she had to pay back this overpayment. The letter asked the administration if she had any money to her credit that could be used to pay the debt as well as her approximate release date. And Clapp's response is sort of maybe my favorite. He just says, quote, please be advised the subject is no longer incarcerated at the Idaho State Penitentiary. She was released on parole on September 1st, 1955, end quote. There is no advisement on where she was paroled, where the authorities might find her. He just was like, she's not here. Best of luck to you, which I think is hilarious. And uh, (laughs) so I kind of say good for Warden Clap. So 
O. Fred McCaskill, who was the first, again, that first assistant to the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Office, wrote H.P. Fales, who was the administrator for the Interstate Parole Compact. He wrote on October 2nd, 1956, quote, We are pleased to report that subject has made a very good adjustment and we recommend her release from supervision at this time if such an action is in accordance with the policies of your agency, end quote. And it was, and she was discharged from parole on October 15th, 1956. But her story is not over yet. Of course. Starting in March 1957, articles began appearing in newspapers about someone named Iva May Albert. So first, the first one I found was from the Atchison Daily Globe from Atchison, Kansas. Quote, five local business firms have reported accepting checks from an unidentified white woman. One victim stated that she had seen the woman before. Two believe they could identify her at another meeting. All checks passed by the woman were drawn on the city national bank. The bank has no account in the name given on the checks. The checks were made payable to Iva May Albert and were drawn on the non-existent account of Mrs. Cleo Keeter, end quote. Then, from the Argus Leader from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, on April 16th, quote, A young woman, described as in her 20s, wrote three bogus checks for $37.50 each at three Brookings business firms last week, and then disappeared. Sheriff H.R. Clausen said checks drawn on the Northwest Security Bank of Brookings signed by Mrs. Cleo Keeter, RFD1, and endorsed by Iva May Albert, RFD1, had been cashed at the SNL store J.C. Penney's and Red Owl in Brookings, end quote. And remember, her checks in Idaho were all for the amount of $37.50. So this is, uh, I don't know why that that amount, but she seemed to like it. And I don't know if it was because it's like feasible paycheck amount. I don't know. But authorities in other states seem to suspect Doris for these forgeries, as Ward and Clapp received letters from Rapid City, South Dakota, Topeka, Kansas, El Dorado, Kansas, and Huntington, Indiana, all asking for a photo and any information about her incarceration and discharge because they suspected her as Mrs. Cleo Keeter. And again, all that Clapp could reply was that she had been released on parole on September 1st, 1955, and discharged on October 15th, 1956. I don't know why she would still be forging checks, why she's on the run again. And I don't know if she was ever caught at any point. There was no articles that I could find in any of those newspapers that had any follow-up with this story. Now, there are snippets of the rest of her life, but I know there are details that I'm missing. So from 1957 on, besides these checks, she really just seemed to live a pretty unassuming life. I know that she and Bill got divorced. I'm not sure when. It had to have been before 1963, because at that point, her name was given as Doris McMillan. And in September 1963, she gave birth to a daughter named Linnea. This would indicate she was married, but I don't know when she got married or who her husband was. On July 9th, 1965, she married a man named Charlie Bells in Sanger, Texas. And according to her obituary, she worked as a cafeteria worker in Denton, Texas county school system. This is also from her obituary. Quote, Doris loved to fish and rummage through garage sales. She was actually known for planning her entire day around a local garage sale. Doris also enjoyed canning various vegetables and such that were a product of her late husband Charlie's beautiful gardens. End quote. And Charlie died in 2007 after 42 years of marriage. And Doris May Ainsworth Bells died on January 27th, 2011, at the age of 80 in Munster, Texas. And she is buried in the McMain Cemetery in Nawada County, Oklahoma. And one last thing, I didn't put this in my notes, but I do remember. So Bill, after they got divorced, he was constantly on the run. Like I said, at one point, he was on the FBI's most wanted list. For AWOL, I think he'd committed some other crimes that I can't remember right off the top of my head. But that's how we know he has that Doris tattoo is because he was constantly on the run and in and out of prison for several years after their marriage mm -hmm. and divorce. So that's the story of um, Doris Ainsworth. Yeah, I liked all the national headlines and all that information, too. And Levensworth is a fascinating, uh -huh. fascinating story, too. Yeah, oh. yeah. I didn't get too deep into that. I guess I just always assumed that it was just for the prison. Right. And I think she is one of the ones that thankfully, normally, <laughs> if I have a forged check, it's like, yep, she forged him check. She was in prison. That's that. <laughs> but she had a really interesting life. Yeah. Well, nice work, yeah, Sky. Thank you. Thank you. 
In 2021, the Idaho State Historical Society is celebrating 140 years of service to Idahoans as the trusted source in protecting Idaho's historical places and artifacts and sharing its stories. As a part of the commemoration, the Old Idaho Penitentiary is committed to bringing you 140 unique stories about the people who worked, lived, and served time at the site through this podcast and the events and programs scheduled throughout the year. The Capturing 140 Storytelling Program offers a unique glimpse at lives filled with hope and despair and the enduring triumphs and tragedies at Idaho's only penitentiary from 1872 to 1973. Stay tuned. Well, um, what have you got for us? Uh, well, I have a fella named William P. Surratt, number 1793. And uh, hopefully the next time you're strolling through downtown Boise with some family and friends, you can kind of tell this story. You're going to notice a particular building in downtown Boise and go, oh, that's what they were talking about. And... Yeah, that's kind of what I was hoping for this holiday season as, as your family comes into town. So, my sources for William Surratt, his prison file located at the Idaho State Archives, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, Findagrave.com, which of course has a lot of family history and a lot of dates, Center for Disease Control and Prevention website articles on the history of smallpox, an article on the Coast Artillery in World War One from American Seacoast Defense Study Group website. William Porter Surratt was born on June 19, 1882 or 1880, depending on what document you look at. And he's born in Moscow, Idaho, to Wiley or Willie and Olive Surratt. And some documents said Willie, but I think it was W-I-L-E-Y, which I think he went by Wiley. Like Wiley Coyote? You know, I've <laughs> never seen that name anywhere else, but he was born in Tennessee and appears to have moved to Nez Perce County in northern Idaho sometime in the mid-1870s, where he was listed in the 1880 census as a farmer. Now, William had two older siblings named Minnie and Wiley Jr., in 1892, the Surratt family moved to Walla Walla, Washington, and four years later, in 1896, William's mother, Olive, died when William was just a teenager, and his father died in 1902 when he was in his early 20s. At 22, William married 15-year-old Rena oh, Hobart no. Yeah, on December 5th, 1904, in Colfax, Washington. She had been born in Kendrick, Idaho, and the two met while living in Moscow. And the reason for their marriage may have been due to pregnancy. Yep. As about mm. Yikes. seven months later after their marriage, they had their first child, a daughter named Myrtle, on July 5th, 1905, in Walla Walla, uh, Washington. 15. No. Yeah. So young. It's so young to have yeah. a baby. It is very young. They had a boy named Ray two years later in 1907. And I found William in the 1905 Polk City Directory for Walla Walla listed as a station engineer. He could have worked for the train company, the railroads, but he most likely specialized on large industrial equipment like boilers. Now, William had a bit of a reputation in North Idaho and around Walla Walla. J.W. Blacker, the chief of police in Moscow, would later report that he had known William, quote, ever since he was a boy and that he is a bad one. He is particularly bad when he has whiskey in him, and the jail is about his right place, end quote. His rascal and abusive antics, while intoxicated, led to police enforcing a no-poor rule for William at local saloons in Walla Walla. Every bartender was to refuse service to him. Wow. Yeah, right? I, I haven't that's seen that very the often. The whole town. Like, that's that's a mm -hmm. bad reputation of everyone in town's like, oh, sorry, can't do it. Right. <laughs> well, it in the spring of 1909, James Cundiff, who was a proprietor of the Farmers Union Saloon in Walla Walla, he was actually brought to trial simply because one of his bartenders served William on New Year's Day. And I couldn't find results of the case, but the fact that William was, like, barred from being served at a saloon is a pretty damning depiction of his character. Yeah, yeah. It, it was quite the story that, you know, somebody served William. Like, oh, my gosh. 
that's wild. And this is even like before prohibition really took hold so this is right like this is truly like you are simply drinking too much we and wreaking too much havoc we cannot serve you and that poor how did that bartender not know or did he do it on purpose and got caught i have i have a lot of questions that you obviously cannot answer i don't know what happened but it was a big story and they were going to try and charge the owner of the saloon for serving william which is can you imagine like that happening today i mean the morality that was attempting to take hold in the early 20th century is is unfathomable oh yeah now in a newspaper clipping from his file mike davis who was the chief at walla walla quote says that sarah has always been an abusive man to his family and that he is now a probated drunk end quote and according to william's father-in-law in the spring of 1911 william was quote wanted in Walla Walla for forgery, end quote. Now, that may have been the reason that on the morning of May 14th, 1911, William found himself in downtown Boise, Idaho. He was probably just passing through the town, stopping off at the depot on 10th and Front Street when he found an opportunity to make some extra cash on Main Street. Now, the previous day, he had stopped at a local pawn shop and pawned a suitcase with its contents for $1.80, And he received a little pawn ticket, like a little receipt that he put in his pocket. That night, two policemen named G.B. Hanby and J.A. Haleman were walking the beat at 2 a.m., crossing the street kitty corner of 11th and Main from the Owyhee Hotel, and they passed the central meat market on the ground floor of the Alaska building when the officers heard a cash register ring open. Now, this is 2 a.m., So just by chance, they glanced inside at the sound of the till and saw William rummaging through it. Hamby ran around to the alley behind the building while Haleman rattled the front door, catching William's attention. William took off running and realized the other officer was at the back door, so he climbed the stairs to the roof. The officer followed close behind. William made it to the top of the Alaska building and crossed to the top of the neighboring Manitou Hotel building. And anyone looking west on Main Street today can see the faint lettering of Manitou written there. And the word is Algonquin, and according to Merriam-Webster, means, quote, a supernatural force that pervades the natural world, end quote. That's interesting. It was an Algonquin word. Algonquin is a very um, eastern Right. William ran to the edge, looking from the Manitou building at the roof, a floor down on the nearby Gem Noble building, Mm. where Asiago's and Zen Bento are now. Mm -hmm. And not only was there a one-story drop between the buildings, but also a 10-foot gap that led to a mini courtyard alley between the buildings on ground level, which William probably couldn't see that night. (gasps) It's 2 a.m. No. Out of sheer desperation with the officer Hamby... Right behind him, William leapt from the Hotel Manitou. He miscalculated the jump. He bounced a, f- a floor down, like 10 feet down. He bounced off the side of the Gem Noble building, bounced backwards into the Manitou building as he fell three more stories into the courtyard between the buildings below. Now, I don't, I don't know if you know this. Humans aren't supposed to bounce <laughs> on anything. That's yeah. also, like my actual nightmare like i'm i'm fairly afraid of heights and that thought of free falling when you think there's something you miscalculated is genuinely i'd be like cool i'm dead like i'm gonna die yeah that feeling oh my gosh the butterfly feeling as you leap off the side of a building i mean how many bones did he break well he landed on the pavement face first quote a crushed and bleeding mass of humanity end quote where he remained unconscious until the police detained him. They ended up actually pulling the loan ticket from his pocket from the pawn shop, and it had his name on it. So they discovered his identity, and he was rushed to St. Luke's Hospital, where he was treated for two broken ribs, a badly wrenched wrist, a swollen ankle, and a gash across his forehead that went to the bone. That's it? He survives this, right? I know. It's crazy. An officer actually remained on guard during his stay at the hospital, and the stitches can still be seen in his mugshot. The South Idaho Press printed, quote, he will be a marked man for the balance of his days, end quote. Uh, 
could see the scar across his forehead right here in his mugshot. That's so such a dramatic way to say he has a scar on his forehead. <laughs> now, $2.20 was in his pocket, which was the suspected loot stolen from the meat market. That's not that much. Uh-uh. And $7.50 in gold and silver. Three days later, he was taken from the hospital to the county jail, where he was served with his arrest warrant and set at a $500 bond, which he could not furnish. And he was returned to St. Luke's, and his hearing was set for May 25, 1911. His attorneys asked for the case to be dismissed, and the newspaper noted that, quote, several relatives have come to the aid of Surratt financially, and there appears to be no doubt but that Surratt will be ably defended in his approaching trial, end quote. He was brought for arraignment on June 5th, where he pled not guilty. He, quote, professed to be in ignorance to what transpired on the roofs of the buildings in the heart of the business district or how he came to be there at two o'clock in the morning, end quote. Well, is it because he went face first into pavement and likely majorly concussed himself? (laughs) Frankly, I mean, I don't want to be on his side, but it seems that there's a perfectly reasonable explanation as to why he can't remember that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, officers, they began actually connecting William to other robberies that occurred that weekend, including the robbery of the Sutton grocery store of $7.60, and that grocery store was on the southeast corner of 9th and Main Street. Uh, of course, as I said, he had about seven fifty in gold and silver, which was probably from that robbery. His trial began a week and a half later, and the jury found him guilty on June 16, 1911. The newspaper noted that if he had not been charged with burglary, he would have been returned to Walla Walla to stand trial for forgery, as mentioned from his father-in-law. Warden Snook actually processed his intake. So William P. Surratt, number 1793, received June 17, 1911 from Ada County, crime burglary in the first degree, sentence not less than one year nor more than 15 years, age 29, Born in Moscow, Idaho, occupation engineer, and served seven years apprenticeship. Five feet, seven and a quarter inches tall. He had a medium complexion. He weighed 155 and a half pounds. His hair color, it says dark brown, thin on top. Blue-gray eyes. He was married with three children. His father died when he was 20 years old. His mother died when he was 15. He left his parents' house at 16. He was raised Baptist and attended Sunday school, but was not a part of any church services now. Had a common school education, attended it for seven years. He was intemperate, which means he drank alcohol excessively. His former imprisonment included jail in Moscow for malicious mischief and jail in Walla Walla for stealing a bicycle. And I couldn't find any information about either of these. His closest relative was his wife, Rena, whom he provided the address to their Walla Walla, Washington home. Peculiarity in build and features, regular large scar between eyebrows, long scar, length of nose on top. His teeth were in good condition, but he was missing two in the upper left, and he had clothing and a satchel, which were stored in the commissary department. His Bertillon showed the large scar between his eyebrows, down the length of his nose, and on his jaw below his lower lip, and he also had a dimple at the point of his chin. He had a lump and scar on the back of his head and neck and blotch marks, maybe birthmarks, on his uh, lower back and a noted set of birthmarks on the back of both of his calves. Warden Snook remarked that he had a, quote, hairy breast, freckles on forehead and face, and nose been split shows stitches, scars between eyebrows showing four or five stitches, end quote. He had moles on his chest and scars on both his middle fingers and around his knees. And it's honestly one of the most thorough marked up Bertillon forms I've come across. Now, Rena actually filed for and was granted a divorce from William while he was incarcerated. And she would marry his brother, a veterinarian, Dr. Spencer Surratt, living in McNulty, Oregon, around 1930. And that's that's Wiley Jr. And she would end up keeping the Surratt name throughout her life. I mean, that feels like, not cold, but like, ooh, that's a bit brutal. Like, now you got to see your ex-wife at family reunions? Like, ooh. Yeah. 
William's file only contained his intake information, a mugshot, and two small newspaper clippings that had the notes from police about his past criminal activity in Moscow and Walla Walla. And looking at Warden Snook's biennial report for 1911 and 1912, I found several interesting connections that William may have been part of. An interesting note, a traveling guard transporting prisoners to the prison during the summer of 1911, around the time William was brought into the institution, contracted smallpox. He was promptly, quote, held under quarantine at his residence until his complete recovery. The office and rooms that had been exposed were fumigated. All prisoners who could not show vaccination were vaccinated. Due to the precautions taken, no other case developed, end quote. As we've discussed a little in the past episodes, smallpox is caused by a virus that can be transmitted through direct contact and respiration as sores appear in the patient's throat and spread through the body. And it started with a high fever and flu-like symptoms like aches and occasionally vomiting, then a rash of small red spots on the tongue and mouth developed, which turn into sores that break and spread the virus into the mouth and throat. These develop into a rash that spreads across the face and slowly works its way throughout the body, and the skin develops similar sores filled with fluid. They are described on the CDC website as looking like peas under the skin. After about five days of this, the pustules begin to crust over and form into scabs, which begin to fall off over about a three-week period. And by the fourth week, the person is typically not considered contagious. Four weeks. You have to live through four weeks of that. A month. Yeah. A whole month of that. And then you're not contagious. Right. Oh, and it's disgusting. Yeah. And three out of every 10 people who contracted it died. Most people who caught it and survived, they had scars across their bodies for the rest of their life. So you can see how dangerous a disease like smallpox Smallpox would be is if... brutal. It is it's actually so what brutal. it's what killed most of the indigenous people when Europeans mm -hmm. came over because they brought that disease with them over from the New World. And it was something that the indigenous populations had never seen. And yeah. Because of how brutal it is, it, it's unfathomable to me that that was in 14th, 15th, 16th century, and this is the 20th century, and they're still dealing with it and at right. a brutal level. Yeah, we're lucky that we don't see this anymore, you know. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Um, and especially in the close quarters of a prison, like, this yeah. would have been extremely dangerous and deadly at the prison if that guard had gone untreated and continued to interact with the prison population so good thing for vaccines <laughs> i was gonna and, say and anthony why don't you tell us why, like why we don't have smallpox anymore <laughs> but i i'm just being a jerk i mean that's that's what's so interesting though is again it it's killed who even knows how many people and oh, we yeah. have eradicated it i don't know what yeah. a smallpox like pustule looks like because oh. we've gotten rid of it like vaccines are incredible it, the, I, I mean <laughs> yes. from a science scientific standpoint truly it changed the course of human history absolutely so that's smallpox and and luckily william actually had a vaccination mark now william was actually one of four engineers and one civil engineer during the several construction projects at the site at that time uh, the population at the end of 1912 was 272 men and zero women Number two cell house was opened up in 1911 with 82-man cells, as was the prison infirmary in the southeast corner of the yard. William may have gotten his stitches removed in this brand-new prison hospital. Warden Snook noted that prisoners were working at the quarry at Table Rock in 1911 to cut stone for use in a school in Gooding for the deaf and blind. And the original school had actually burned in 1908, and the new stone allowed for a new dormitory for boys in the school. When it was completed in the spring of 1912, Miss Grace Shepard, state superintendent, made this great speech with some sage words on education that, you know, we could still hear today. She said, quote, the state has not appreciated this institution. It has not realized the work that the superintendent and teachers of this school are doing to prepare these children for life. To many persons, education means only cost and expense. The state has gone mad over these two things. When the cost of the state government is bound to be higher than the treasury can afford, the first thing that is done is to lessen the appropriations for education, the one thing that should be the last to receive the cut. 
This state will succeed only as its men and its women are educated. The success of this form of government depends upon the intelligence, the wisdom, the education of the citizens of the state. We must awake to that responsibility. Whoever heard of the appropriations for a penitentiary or a reformatory being cut? If we build right, we will have less need for penitentiaries and reformatories. And the weights of reform is by building schools, end quote. I, I just mean, thought this was like, wow. It's it's a conversation we are still having yeah, today. Yeah, 1912, 100 is, years later, yeah. we're still having this. Yeah. So, and I just love this idea of the prisoners quarrying the stone to erect a school, you know, like, mm-hmm. and her insight on the importance of that education as this mm-hmm. preventative measure for mm-hmm. crime. You know, it's, oh, wow. Besides this, uh, 50 men worked in the quarry between 1912 and 1913 for the construction of the state sanitarium in Nampa. And about a dozen prisoners were sent there to work on constructing the building and developing the farm. Now, you know, I couldn't find any write-ups or any other information about what William was doing during his incarceration, but we can speculate with his background growing up on a farm and his education at work as a station engineer. He was probably kept busy by Warden Snook on a number of projects throughout the site on different big industrial items um, during those construction projects. Now, William came before the parole board and was released on parole on March 2nd, 1914. So about two and a half, almost three years Interestingly, in many of these files during Snook's tenure, each prisoner had a thick index card with their mugshot on one side and all the intake information, including the Bertillon measurements and fingerprinting information on the back, that has an area for remarks at the bottom. And on Williams, there is a parole date, and below that, the word violator. But it doesn't have any other dates, and I couldn't find any other information on when or how he had violated his parole or whether he was arrested and brought back to serve out the rest of his time. I actually don't find much else until his admission into the United States Army on December 26, 1916. He joined the Coast Artillery Corps and served as a sergeant in the 3rd Company in defense of the Columbia. Now, according to Wikipedia, they were responsible for anti-aircraft, harbor, and coastal defense and operated both railway and heavy artillery during World War I. And you can look up the massive howitzer railway guns that were used during World War I, which were essential to defend, like, supply lines. And the United States actually entered the war four months after he was admitted on April 6, 1917, after Germany had sunk several American merchant ships and, you know, the diplomatic relations had ended earlier that spring. And William would actually serve until September 24, 1919, and he served in Fort Stevens in Oregon, defending the mouth of the Columbia River from enemy entry. And I couldn't find any specifics about his service, but according to his application for headstone or marker upon his death, he re-enlisted that day on September 24, 1919, and was finally honorably discharged on September 24, 1920, exactly a year later. Sometime that year, he married a woman named Cynthia Wilcox, and they would have two children together, including Wiley and Laura. So continuing that Wiley name. Now, the next record I have is that William was living in Isabella, Washington in 1935 and in 1940. And then William's brother Spencer, Wiley Spencer Jr., died on September 18, 1940, leaving his ex-wife slash sister-in-law, Rena, a widow. William's wife, Cynthia, died March 18, 1955, and on June 10, 1955, just a few months later, the Daily Chronicle from Centralia, Washington, printed the story, quote, keep same name. Through three marriages now, Rena Surratt hasn't changed her name. Her marriage to William P. Surratt this week marks the third time in her life she has become a Surratt, and the second time she has married William P. Surratt. They were divorced after the first marriage, and she later married his brother, Spencer Sherrod. She was widowed upon Spencer's death some time ago, end quote. So he remarried his first wife. They were both widow and widower and remarried each other. I think that is interesting. I mean, I guess at this point he's proven he's not gotten into trouble. and Yeah. But how long was she married to his brother? About... 10 years oh, before okay. his death. Yeah. Oh, okay. It wasn't yeah. as long as I thought. 
Huh. That so, is so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So she she married his brother around 1930, and then he died in 1940. Oh, gotcha. Okay. A year after this remarriage to his first wife, William died on August 28th, 1956, at Fort Stillicum, Washington. And he is buried in an IOOF plot of the Shelton Memorial Cemetery in Tacoma, Washington. And that is the life and exciting jump to freedom that he was hoping for and eventual stitches across his face that he probably had to explain throughout his life. It was just a fascinating story to me. Yeah, I mean, he just is so lucky that all he came out of that with was a couple broken ribs and like a, and a swollen ankle and stitches on his face. I honestly, right. face down onto the pavement, he's lucky he was not dead. Yeah, I, that's absolutely. so wild. That's so wild. That's such an interesting story. Very excellent job, as always. Oh, thanks, Guy. Every place has so many stories, mm-hmm. and his is just so exciting. It's just yeah. like an action movie. <laughs> an action movie gone wrong, for sure. Yeah. You know, I hope that the next time you're walking by, you see that Hotel Manitou, that ghost sign up there on the top of that building. You're going to go, oh, wow. You know what happened right there? <laughs> I will certainly tell everyone I know they're going to be real annoyed with me because that's all I ever do. It's like, did you know this? What about this place? How about this place? I, know. I was like, yeah, Same. shut up. Let's just have dinner. Do we have to always talk about crime? <laughs> I know. Can you, can you talk about anything else? And I'm always like, yeah, no, right. no. All right, everybody. Well, have a great Thanksgiving, and we'll be back next week. Do your own time. Do your own number. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod.